This episode was recorded with an audience of Ambition Empower members. Empower is a continuous learning program that rethinks how you learn new topics within the field of design. Instead of attending a conference, you attend Ambition Empower and take part in one or several tracks taught every week by industry design leaders. For more information, visit uxpodcast.com forward slash empower. UX Podcast Episode 308. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge for over a decade. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson. And Pat Axbom. With listeners in countries and territories all over the world, from Chad to Bosnia-Herzegovina. Cheryl Kababa is a multidisciplinary designer with more than two decades of experience working on everything from robotic surgery experience design to reimagining K-12 education through service design. In her work with consultancies such as Substantial, Frog, and Adaptive Path, she has worked with a diverse base of clients, including the Gates Foundation, Microsoft, and IKEA. Cheryl is an international speaker and workshop facilitator. She specializes in developing tools and methods for designers to expand their mindsets beyond user-centered design, anticipate unintended consequences, and engage in systems thinking. With her new book, Closing the Loop, Cheryl has written a guide for designers wanting to bring more systems thinking into their everyday work. I am always curious about the process. So my first question is going to be, what made you write a book about systems thinking? Yeah, so I, I'm i not someone who is a formal, what you might call like systems thinking methodologist or systems thinking scientist. I'm just a designer. I'm a designer. I'm a design researcher, a design strategist. And I think what I've been finding over the past several years is just that um, the design thinking process as it stands today, or that we've pretty much formalized, um, has its limitations in terms of designing for individual users. And that's great. But I think as we think about how we design products at scale, how we design to essentially try and solve for wicked problems, we're applying design thinking to all of these um, diverse spaces in which we need a broader lens. So just thinking about not just an end user, an individual end user, and how they benefit from the use of like a product or service that we're designing, but also just more broadly, what is the diversity of people who are using our products and services? Who is affected by the things that we're designing and maybe aren't even using it? Um, Who is kind of like collateral damage in the decisions that we're making as designers? And how limited are we as designers um, as a practice, just like in terms of our purview, where we come from, um, you know, the privileges that we hold as designers? And how do we expand our thinking kind of beyond the direct decision making that design thinking offers us? So 
I started looking into systems thinking methodologies. Um, you know, these include um, creating things like causal loop diagrams and, um, you know, essentially kind of thinking about all the components of a system and how do you sort of make sense of it before you go into the design process. Um, and what's interesting is that oftentimes in the formalized systems thinking process, as you're doing these like analyses and mapping exercises, the map is oftentimes the end product. So it's like you're mapping these things, you're seeing how forces affect each other, and then you're inserting kind of change or interventions and seeing how those maps change. And I understand the benefit of that. I feel like that's a really good way to analyze like a really complex system. But at the same time, I felt like as a designer, that was not super accessible to me. Like it's not something that I would spend a lot of time doing and then sort of insert these like little wrenches of intervention into a gigantic systems map that is dynamic and then model it so that mathematically so that I could see what's going to change. It's like, um, yeah, we're trying like the goal of being a designer is like designing and products or designing solutions. And I think um, I wanted to sort of create a guide in a way to how to integrate systems thinking into your design practice while still acknowledging like you are a designer, you are trying to accomplish certain things. And this is just a way to expand our analyses. So and I didn't, I couldn't find any resources that kind of gave me that lens. And so I was like, well, maybe I should write it. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 I mean, right at the beginning of the book, you, you straight away get into, um, well, trying to define systems thinking, I guess, but not just define it, but also separate it into um, hard systems thinking and soft systems thinking. What, what's, what's the difference between those two then? So I think a lot of times when people think about systems thinking, they're thinking about, and maybe in the design space, they're thinking about things like design systems. Um, I think design systems and any sort of complex systems that are oriented around solving engineering problems fall into like a hard, the hard systems methodology. And by the way, like um, Peter Checkland, who's a systems thinking scientist who's been doing this basically since the 1960s, is kind of the person who kind of broke this out into these two categories. And not everyone who engages in formalized systems thinking, like just as a caveat, necessarily agrees that these distinctions exist. Um, but that said, I feel like it's a it's a good um, framework for designers to think about systems thinking. So hard systems is yeah, if you are kind of building something complex, like if you, um, you know, for example, I'm in Seattle, Boeing is based here. And when engineers are building an airplane, I would think of that as like hard systems because there's a lot of components, it's super complex. You're kind of coordinating, putting those things together. That is hard systems methodology. Whereas soft systems thinking is kind of the area that I feel like, um, best describes what I'm writing about, which is leading with inquiry into a complex sort of problem space. So how do you take a systemic lens to learning about a problem space and better understanding it 
in order to create potential solutions. Um, and so it's kind of front loading your analysis and inquiry. Um, and that could result in hard systems. Like you could be designing sort of complex things that require a hard systems thinking. But um, I think the space that I'm most interested in is how do you define a problem space more broadly? And then how do you think about the various potential interventions or solutions that might, um, yeah, help change that problem space or affect it or create better outcomes. And so that's how I kind of think about the two spaces. Um, there was actually a, a recent Twitter thread that talked about a concept that I hadn't been aware of, and I wish I had been aware of as I was writing this book, but Karl Popper, the philosopher, had um, sort of divided problems into kind of two spaces. One is clock problems and one is cloud problems. And the clock problems, is he describes it as clock problems because it's like, if you are tasked with building a clock, you know kind of like what you need to do and the decisions that you need to make. You're like, I need to make this work. I need it to do these things. And so it's more or less an engineering problem. Whereas the cloud problem is this kind of nebulous space where you're trying to understand what the problem even is. And I think that cloud space is kind of the area in which I'm writing about when I think about systems thinking and how it might apply um, for designers. I think that's that's actually, that's actually a pretty good um, way of describing it because yeah, I, I'm, I think I think normally I would think more like you did with the, the Boeing, the plane. Here's a here's a plane. It's a complex thing, and there's lots of wires, there's lots of different things, and all of this needs to go together in order to make this thing stay in the air when it's flying around. Whereas you know the, the soft things, I, I I think of more as like. The, I guess more human side of it, it's like with this messy, messy humans with all these different interconnected decisions and stuff that's all playing around. But I, I also thought it was really interesting when you had the you you brought it up now about design systems because I I hadn't thought about design systems in this context. Yeah, I mean, same. I, my background is as an economist, so so I'm I'm familiar with aspects of design of system thinking and design thinking and and then design systems are something that feels like they've come very recently um but i guess there's a story behind i mean you must have done some research or feedback amongst designers to get that kind of feeling that there was a lot of overlap there or confusion about the phrases yeah i mean i do think i do think there's some confusion like when i talk about systems thinking i think there's a handful of folks especially in the design space who think i'm about to talk about design systems and i'm like oh, wow. i always have to caveat it and be like no 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 like that's that's actually because that falls, I think that falls pretty readily into the hard systems thinking space is thinking about components, is thinking about how they connect with each other. Um, and it's sort of breaking down systems in a way that you can then create efficiencies. Um, I refer to, um, I don't know, a lot of designers are familiar with the book of pattern language. And that's from, you know, like the 1970s. And it was written, um, oh my gosh, I'm like forgetting, uh, Christopher Alexander, I think, was one of the authors. And it was basically like how you, how you design environments. Like this is how a house should be designed. And this is how this house should fit into a neighborhood. And this is how the roads should be designed around those houses. And then when you put these neighborhoods together, this is how 
they should connect to each other. And it's kind of like thinking about like the smallest component all the way up to the largest component. And he even talks about like, I don't know, I'm sure there's problematic things in this book right now, but like, the you know, the types of family units that should live in them or what yeah, have you. Yeah. It's kind of funny because it is sort of thinking about it like the Sims. Like if you read a pattern language with the idea that you're like, oh, I'm like designing like a Sims world. Um, it sort of falls into that category. But yeah, I mean, I think systems thinking can inform something like design systems, but that is that definitely falls outside of the category of the kinds of systems thinking frameworks and methods that I'm engaged in in the book. Essentially, the way I think about it is that systems thinking is just meant to like broaden your lens as a designer from like on a couple of levels like it's really important to expand your notion of why like why do things happen the way they do today before you start problem solving um and then also just kind of thinking about how a lot of different things are interconnected um there are things that are difficult to predict like human behaviors um and there's a broader system in place outside of just the area in which you as a designer might be tasked with problem solving. And that might actually inform the way you try and problem solve. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really about just like understanding complex spaces and designing for them. Yeah. I really liked how you, how you started with your first answer. I'm just a designer. Because sometimes it can feel really intimidating to think about these new concepts. And now that we're going through them, oh, soft and hard and all these different theories, do I really need to understand all this? But what you're really doing in the book is actually breaking it down and make it really simple for me to just start applying it in my work. So, so I thought, let's get into what are the three concepts of design or system thinking? Yeah, so I think about the three areas in which you can best sort of expand your thinking as a designer are the notions of wholeness, interconnectivity or interconnectedness and causality. So in terms of wholeness, I think I just referred to that a little bit. And that means kind of thinking more broadly about where, um, where the, th where the area that you're thinking about sits and what can possibly affect that? So if you're designing the like button, <laughs> I don't know, I'm just coming up with that. It's not, it doesn't sit in a vacuum and you can't just yeah. really like think about it as like testing with individual users and seeing if they like it or if they're frustrated by it or what their pain points are. You also have to think about the system in which it sits. So, um, hey, a good example of that recently was like when Elon Musk decided the blue check mark on Twitter, people were going to pay $8 for it or what have you. And yeah, that's just like a good system for creating blue check mark. You could almost like just like foresee, even if you couldn't do it specifically of how exactly yeah. that was going to go wrong and down to people impersonating Elon Musk himself. All of those things point to this idea of wholeness like you need to kind of look beyond just the specific way in which you're solving a problem and i think that's yeah. something about elon musk like he's an engineer right so like he thinks about it in that very clock focused way without understanding that human behavior is a cloud of un unpredictability and that you have to like do a lot of analysis to make sure you don't have unintended consequences right 
Um, I think that also applies to the notion of interconnectedness. So we have wholeness, we have interconnectedness, and how things are connected in ways that you might not necessarily anticipate. Um, I think in terms of interconnectedness, I like to think of just things that are not normally in the purview of, um, you know, when I think about designers specifically working in the technology industry, for example, it's like, you should be thinking about regulation, like the regulatory environment. You should be thinking about policy, about how all of those things could affect the products and services that we are designing. And I think there's, um, you know, I don't want to like lump all the designers who work in like, let's say user experience design in the same category, because I think there are quite a few who are inherently aware of that. For example, like those who are working in civic design really truly understand um, the notion of like understanding the regulatory environment or trying to, or knowing that that has an impact. Um, and then, and there's all sorts of forms of interconnectedness that we need to consider. And then the last one is causality. And so causality is just what are, I think there's two ways of thinking about this. One is, as you try to understand the world as it ex exists today, as you would try to understand the status quo, how do you understand the root causes of kinds of the problems that we're currently experiencing? Um, and then as you think about ways to intervene within those problem spaces, how do we then think about the potential unintended consequences that might result? And so you're kind of like working downward in terms of understanding the status quo. And then you're kind of working forward. I know those like uh, metaphors don't work together, but you're working forward um, when, as you're thinking about the potential solutions. Um, and as I said before, like I have a lot of trouble with the word solutions because um, Peter Sang, who wrote The Fifth Discipline, which is like, um, I guess like a management theory, organizational management theory plus systems thinking book that was kind of like uh, foundational um, in the 70s. He said um, that something along the lines of today's problems are yesterday's solutions. So by not calling them solutions, you don't apply finality to them. You understand that they may uh, create additional problems that you'll then need to solve. And so um, I think it's important to think about them as like interventions or initiatives or the kinds of things that we understand might need some change, tweaking, adjustment, iteration in the future. So uh, yeah, so those are kind of the three concepts is wholeness, interconnectedness, and causality. And that really makes me think, and you're alluding to it when you're talking about Elon Musk, that he was, his, his scope was too narrow and he had to go broader. But when do you stop? When do you, because I, I was experimenting with doing a, 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 like what you actually had in the book, like a causality map of the pandemic as well and what affects virus spread and so on. But when I kept going and going, I realized, well, I could, I could do this forever. How do I know I'm done mapping out whatever system I'm trying to map? <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. It's that's actually a really tough question. And um, I think oftentimes pre design practitioners that I speak to are afraid of that very thing. Like, they're like, I will, will I ever feel like it's complete? Like, will I feel like I'm just going and going and going and trying to, yeah, essentially boil the ocean um, by like trying yeah. to map it? 
And mm. I guess my sense about that is, yeah, it's an, it's an ambiguous space. So you might feel that kind of discomfort. But I think what's most important is probably having some like clarity on your research questions. Like, what are you trying to understand? And what are you trying to uncover? You know, you could use something like the iceberg model, which I talk about in the book, which is, you know, analyzing events, understanding the patterns and trends beneath those events, the structural issues, and then the mindsets. And I think doing that in tandem if you are doing a causal loop diagram, for example, helps you kind of limit the boundaries of like what you're trying to understand. And I think one thing to remember is as you're doing something like a causal loop diagram to not just get totally lost in it is to really try to get to root cause. So I call it the deep structure. I recommend to anybody who asks about like a really super practical method for causal loop diagramming is a mid-year networks systems practice. Um, it's a PDF that they've just kind of released to the world. You can just basically Google it. And it's a really good guide for creating causal loop diagrams. And I think um, like even they don't say like, hey, here's how you know that you're done because everybody's kind of dealing with the different sizes of different spaces and also what is the kind of objective of you doing this work? Is it to kind of pinpoint, oh, hey, here's like five different areas of intervention that we can think about that would make sense for this space? Then I don't know, probably when you get to those five intervention areas, like you're, you don't have to do a great deal more analysis. Um, I like to think of the, and I think I, I don't write about this in terms of the causal loop diagramming, but in the book, I do talk about it when you're thinking about a theory of change is you can use the um, steep framework. So like, what are things that are happening that are sociocultural, technological, economic, ecological, and political? And you can just like start doing your analysis in that way and start creating causal loops. Um, but oftentimes what I found is like the best causal loop diagrams, they sometimes don't even have more than like two loops. Um, if you look at the book, there's this book, um, Systems Thinking for Social Change by David Peter Stroh. And he has ca some causal loop diagrams in there. And they're all basically like three loops or two loops. And the reason for that is that they pretty much kind of like boil down the problems into these three loops. So you shouldn't have to be doing like you know, hundreds of interconnected. I, I've actually done those systems mapping exercises where there's hundreds of interconnected loops. And I don't know yeah. if they're of greater value than kind of doing one that has like three or four. I mean, I guess, I mean, a system has to be bounded. I mean, otherwise we're just going to kind of like explode into the universe of, of you know, infinity. And, and I think it's a good point you said about how the, the root cause or the, you know, the root of them is probably what guides your bounding. That, you know, going back to your pair, I mean, I suppose when you're doing, you're, you did your one about COVID-19, then you get to a point where you, you feel like you're, it's drifting maybe a little bit too far away from your COVID-19 central loop. Exactly. You, think, you could keep just, going on forever, but you think, yeah. well, actually, this is a, this is a secondary or tertiary, yeah. or this is a kind of yeah. like third order effect now. Maybe I don't need to dig too deep into that. Yeah.
And it has to be ma manageable, I guess. I, I really yeah. liked how you expressed it uh, using perhaps the iceberg model first, mm. because that allows me to find my boundaries. But also it has to be manageable. And I was thinking as you were speaking as well, what you were saying about it's never finished, <laughs> but I need, to, I need to finish it so I can get on to the next step, actually working with it and drawing conclusions from it and understanding it and talking about it uh, with others. Uh, so... One trick is also, of course, not to spend too much. It's the same problem as well. I realized. I mean, for your UX research, when how, how do I, how do how do I know I'm done with my UX research because it's time boxed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think one one thing that's like an important thing to take away is that you should not be doing these kinds of mapping exercises in isolation. You should be doing them with your stakeholders because then you kind of are gaining alignment and. You need to ensure also that your stakeholders are, are diverse, that they're people who are potentially like affected by the system that you're referring to, but also there are decision makers in the mix. And yeah, I think a good example is if one of your research questions is something like, okay, in the city in which I live in during the pandemic, we had problems with mask adherence, right? And so if that's one of your questions, you're kind of looking at the behavioral aspects, you're looking at the communications that your sort of um, government entities have engaged in, you're looking at sort of the barriers to people like finding it feasible to wear a mask, you're looking at the mindsets that are involved, and kind of doing these exercises um, even creating causal loops with other stakeholders, I think, will help kind of get you to a place where you're kind of understanding the problem space more broadly, as well as doing it with um, like and sometimes more accessible ones are things like the iceberg model in order to kind of do that and gain alignment with your stakeholders about where the problems really are. Um, and so, yeah, coming in with some clarity about what are the things you're actually trying to understand I think is really is really important before you embark on this because you don't want to be like, okay, we're just going to understand, try to understand um, homelessness worldwide. <laughs> like <laughs> you're not going to get anywhere with that because there are so many specific and localized contexts and what have you. So you really need to like create like first of all some boundaries that give you some clarity as to like where your analysis should naturally stop. If I'm a designer, I'm trying to just get some more clarity myself personally on a project I'm working on. And, and maybe I'm not in a position to uh, you know, contact stakeholders or work with stakeholders. I'm just kind of like, I'm feeling my way in this and want to kind of reassure myself of where I'm working. I mean, is there still usefulness in that? Or do we have to go full on kind of take on the organization with our systems thinking? Yeah, it's a good question because I really think about um, the mindset of engaging in systems thinking for designers is design as facilitation. Like you're facilitating other people's knowledge, you're facilitating other people's expertise, you're engaging people who don't have the same skills or experiences as you do. And that comes in a number of different formats. And one is want doing foundational research with people so understanding their context i think this is where there's a, like a really strong overlap between design research and systems thinking um especially when applied to the design space and then 
there's also like engaging in participatory design or co-design when it comes to building this understanding. And so I think there are moments where, it, yeah, you do go away and you can synthesize, but you're going to have to validate that synthesis with others. Um, and that could be your decision makers, but that could also be people who are affected by the system. So it could be like end users and beneficiaries, folks like that. So a good example is I do a lot of um, project work in education and I could be working, for example, for an ed tech developer who's just, you know, I don't know, creating courseware or supplements for students trying to learn math. And you could just go off and design that and test it with, um, I don't know, sixth grade students or something like at the school nearby. But I don't think that will help as you're thinking about one, like, School education is a public and highly regulated arena where there are lots and lots of stakeholders. It's meant to um, serve many, many different types of people. And by not sort of uh, doing a little bit of due diligence and um, expanding who your stakeholders are, you're probably missing the boat on some things and you're probably creating some unintended consequences um, in in others. And so I think part of your job in like working in those kinds of complex spaces is really engaging diverse stakeholders. And of course that takes like a lot more time and energy and making the case, which um, I know can be an issue, especially, you know, you're working on things that require speed from your organization but i think it's important and it's important to make the case for it yeah i was thinking again about the um referring back to you know musk again because there's been so many examples that you get from him in recent months um that he he's he seems to be working very linear you know he's doing the he's doing he's working iteratively but he is still working very linear let's throw the blue tick change out there and oh look it didn't work i will just do another iteration see it again so you know that's when he's plowing on in a, in a straight line without considering any systems thinking yeah i think um i think that's why sort of the analysis up front before you throw things out into the world is really important i don't get the impression they're even doing like basic from like a classic design thinking method um basic research and validation before they do that like it's basically doing that iteration yeah, there's not enough um i mean you, you you hope that they've got they've got kind of aligned values within twitter that you know would would mean make sure that they didn't um engage in creating harm it's a, i think it's a fascinating um kind of test exercise it's kind of like try try do some you know a, a causal you know loop map of, of twitter and you know take your blue tick like you said um, gerald and change the blue tick and then map out what the kind of changes are of that it's um yeah i've worked with some of these big technology companies kind of making these decisions about social networks um because i did i did do a map in a few years ago oriented around Facebook and kind of like their impact. And I think um, is really interesting. I mean, they some of them are engaging in that kind of analysis before they release features. And it, it shows because like some of the features I know about have not been released because they just feel like it could cause too much harm unless it's worked out differently. And um, and that's 
kind of interesting in that space is like, we don't hear about it. So we think they're just doing damage when I think in reality, um, when done correctly, you probably won't hear about it because it might mean not making that decision or like not releasing that particular design or feature. That's a very good point. I get often asked a lot about what are the best examples of ethical practices? And I realize, well, they, they haven't been implemented. That's the thing. Yeah. And I think another aspect of this is when you think about how there's been so much talk of disrupting markets and disrupting things. And when, you, when you're talking about you know, systemic change or systems, it's like when, when you've got like an active goal of disrupting a system, then, then the mapping of that system and understanding of the system is, is absolutely essential. And my, my feel is that I, I think a lot of these companies that seem to want to disrupt haven't really understood what it truly means to disrupt. Yeah, and I think there is, I refer at one point in the book to, I think he's called Peter Merton, um, Merton's framework for unintended consequences. And he basically sort of outlines the reason that, or Rob, sorry, Robert Merton, um, the reasons that um, folks are unable to anticipate unintended consequences. And I think one of those he calls the imperious immediacy of interest. You want to create good in the world. And so the only things that you see is like the positive outcomes of what you're working on. And I think I was like, wow, this guy wrote this stuff in the 30s, but this really feels like techno optimism, you know, like ride sharing services, right? Like how they have basically, or something like Airbnb, like you're kind of thinking about, oh, there's going to be this benefit and yeah, it's going to save people money. It's going to mm. like, you know, if you think about Uber, it's going to transform the landscape of transportation. It's going to, um, you know, be less carbon output because, no, you know, people aren't going to have to own their own cars and they're not going to be driving as much. They'll just be relying on mm. others to drive. And like study after study has now shown that it actually is increasing carbon output in cities where these ride services are really prevalent. Right. It's actually disrupting public transportation to the point of like a lack of funding in many public transport systems, which is not what we want. Um, you know, especially if we are interested in more efficient mass trans transit and, but they were able to kind of like tell themselves these stories about the positive impact it would have from the beginning. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's something that hopefully some of this type of analysis helps to fight is like by trying to understand it before it's happening out in the world and that you are doing this iteratively by combining it with design thinking that you can sort of better understand how it might have an impact um, before you actually kind of make those decisions. That's interesting. The whole um, the whole thing with, with Airbnb, how, you know, did they think when they set off to, to with their vision of, of being at Airbnb, did they expect to hollow out entire communities in like pretty picturesque seaside towns or something? And, and you know, did was that part of their vision? And did they care about that as a consequence of their work? And if they did care about it, or didn't i mean so how does that affect the business side of this is yeah and and who drives the legal aspect to make sure this change is in place to stop that you know, loop going around and destroying communities absolutely fascinating yeah definitely it's it's one of those things where it's like i mean we've all we've all stayed in airbnbs right and it's just like 
I think oftentimes, yeah, it's a pretty good alternative, but you kind of see these, this sort of impact on like when this type of thing happens at scale. And I sort of think like a lot of these companies, um, the only, the only time. Yeah. And here, like, hopefully it's not sounding too cynical, but like the only time that they will take action is when it starts affecting them. So if they're hollowing out the seaside town and the seaside town becomes less interesting to visit, which means that it, you know, less money for Airbnb, then I think that's a point where they might take action. But this is why regulatory environments are really important. Like to be able to stop that type of thing from happening. Now you have organizations like Uber that have literally actually, um, try to i don't know that have tried to fly in the face of like regulatory environments in order to kind of do what they want to do um and i think like that that particularly is kind of thinking about i don't know it's it's kind of this short termism that is somewhat disturbing because i think in the end yeah these organizations they'll be affected by the very changes that they made in these cities and what have you whether a city cracks down or whether like you're saying like the um the culture of places change that they're so dependent on for um you know for their own business to be successful i, I love how we've moved now during this conversation from we we've moved from the lower level systems of kind of, oh, here's, a, here's a like button you click and so on and now we've moved up to where we're interconnected systems and like governments and organizations communities and so on which is next level system, you know, interconnectivity. Um, wonderful. Which is the point, I think. And I, mm. I think and that's what I really appreciate about your book is that also that you, you sort of critique design thinking, uh, but you're being very positive in that it can complement design thinking as well. Because if we actually do use system thinking, we can uh, mitigate some of the weaknesses that design thinking brings. That with user is not a user, it's a human being who's very complex, like we were talking about in the beginning. And there are harms that we've been talking about now that happen that we can actually uncover with systems thinking. If we do a better job of that, then maybe, just maybe, uh, we, we can uh, reach a place that actually contributes better to society in a way that we would like to, that I honestly think that a lot of companies actually do want to. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think... I cynicism aside i feel like they really believe in what they're doing and i think that's why there's a little bit of interrogation around like the techno optimism needs to happen because i think like yeah sometimes you get into a space of like oh my gosh this is new this is emerging technology it's going to help everybody i um you know you kind of see this with ai a lot as well like where it's kind of like oh yeah ai is just like it will remove bias. It will, you know, do all of these things. But then you're kind of like, well, yeah, but what is what are those AIs being trained on? Um, you know, like what is informing it? And that could just like reinforce historical bias. And I think some of these exercises kind of help you at least understand or anticipate where things might not directionally go where you want it to go so that you can either plan for it or you can go back and redesign or you know, you might end up like thinking like this is not this is not worth releasing and we need to kind of think about, you know, if it's going to cause more harm than good, then maybe it's not something we should do. 
And I think that's what a lot of this analysis is really good for. It's not meant to stop things from happening, which um, I don't know. I've had I've definitely had some practitioners ask me that. Like, is this are these types of methods like meant to keep us from like doing anything? And I was like, no, absolutely not. It's meant to expand your thinking. Like the mindset is expand your thinking so you can do more. You can do other things that you can support the solutions that you're thinking about by recognizing that un this intervention needs to happen over here. Like, I think it's um, just sort of thinking holistically beyond just like what we are actually tasked with doing. And that actually helps us become more innovative and creative about how to problem solve. Yeah, also you can actually, you can create um, um, things, designs that fit into the system. So they, they kind of improve the system without disrupting the system. Because like, going back to what we said about disruption, not it's not always good to disrupt systems. Sometimes it's good to just improve them rather than kind of take them down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have a really good example in the book of um, there was a graduate student team at Johns Hopkins who were working on um, trying to understand how they could, it, it was like an elderly home service program, like home health service program. And they weren't getting a lot of uptick in terms of, folks who were eligible for it using the service. So they did kind of a system thinking analysis to understand, okay, what, like, what, um, what are most of these folks who could use these services? What are they surrounded by? What are like some of the other services they're using? How do they interact with the government? And they were able to kind of pinpoint existing things in the system that they could then sort of take advantage of. Like, for example, there is a Meals on Wheels service for elderly homebound people. Um, and what they did was they ended up partnering with that particular organization to help people learn about this home health service um, in order to be able to provide that service to them. And I think without the systems thinking analysis. And then there were a few other intervention points as well. And I think just thinking about that very specific space, um, just by expanding their notion of who is involved, help them create like partnerships with existing services instead of spending a lot of money kind of doing something like some sort of outreach campaign where they're going door to door or something. There are already people going door to door. Like they were already there. And um they learned about this through their analysis. And so I think just things like that, like help you get creative about what exists already. I think the Gates Foundation has another really good example of um, trying to get vaccines to very, very rural places, um, especially vaccines that need to be refrigerated. You know where um, in the most rural of places, in the most developing of markets, the Coca-Cola truck still goes there, right? And so why not have these vaccines also go onto those trucks um, that have refrigeration on them so that you could also deliver this kind of health service, you know, via that existing private infrastructure. And so it's kind of things like that, that systems thinking helps um, unearth so that it, in many ways, we don't waste time and effort and money and doing duplicative things as well as like thinking about creative solutions that might not might not have occurred to us before 
That was a perfect note to end on. Really enjoyed your book as well. And it's uh, it's out in, is it March, April, something like that? Um, February 21st. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Harold. I love how this interview sort of makes us question everything. And her book asks us, I mean, we should dismiss the idea of solutions. <laughs> we should dismiss the idea of human-centered design. Uh, and I agree with her. I mean, because this is all alludes to when I talk about ethics and thinking of the bigger perspective. But I also feel kind of, when, I, when I'm thinking about all the organizations that have to actually think about their unintended consequences of their actions, how many will actually make sure that they don't cost the... I mean, you had some great examples when talking about Airbnb as well. I mean, I, oh, yeah, I wrote, I wrote down in my notes here, it's like, um, in response to this, the, the problem we have of coming across as the party pooper. It's kind of yeah. like, oh, we were having so much fun and we were getting on so well with designing this until you uh, pointed out all this ethical stuff. And then you kind of, you know, <laughs> you're spoiling the party, um, which is, I mean, I, I don't think that's an unusual situation to find yourself in. Um well, no, in, in many organizations, because not every organization is mature when it comes to reflecting on uh, understanding their own um, consequences. Right. And understanding, perhaps, I mean, because you're, you're thinking of outcomes beyond the scope of your project, really. That's 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 what we're tending to do. Mm. And you're, you're right. You're not mature enough, but perhaps you're also you're also so invested in something that you believe will be really good that's so easy to just disregard whatever consequences and not see them as big as they perhaps are. And, and this is this is a very human thing in itself. And I, I, I got really, um, my mind got really going on the old idea that um, with the, the clocks and clouds and, and hard and soft um, systems and how um, our design industry um, is in itself a, a complex mishmash of, of um, well, hard and soft subsystems that there are people out there. We, we've had conversations. We, we've talked about how some people like, you know, don't think beyond maybe the, the interface or design of what they're doing or design system. And I think it's, it, it's kind of understandable that some people might be content with being inside of a hard system. Yeah. And that hard system maybe is the concrete design system they use or you know inside their figma or inside you know you you don't need to look outside of that box um and that does make you kind of feel safer i guess because it's very bounded it's bounded and you don't have to acknowledge that you're responsible for anything beyond that boundary which is oh it's frustrating but of course i mean that's i mean and but then again then on the other hand if you go to the other extreme how much are you responsible for as you put something into the world uh, and yeah, and, and the whole thing about what you can impact, impact and can't impact, and you know, can we can we realistically expect every single human involved in design to care about the 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 soft system that is beyond the hard system that they're working within? Yeah, but I think that's where all the tools that Cheryl has in her book and the the messaging of her book it allows people to at least document and make more people aware. So if people weren't aware before, they're more aware now. And it may be that they care. Maybe they don't care, but it will be more, you'll reach more people, which makes it probably, 
more true that more people will also perhaps be willing to make a difference. Yeah. I mean, I suppose in some ways, it's like if, if you've got an itch, then you scratch it. Mm. I mean, this is a kind of, if you've got to that point of thinking that there is um, impacts beyond yeah. what you normally would conceive to be within your project, within your space or whatever, then it's time for you to start looking up at this and reading about this mm. and, and working out how you can work with it more. Yeah. I guess it's a next step, isn't it? It probably is a next step, and I mean, it, it's and it it is. I think you said it, it's you have to. It's the messy interactions with humans, and that can be hard work and it can be exhausting, but it's also well worth the work. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think too. Well, um, the point that you brought up and you know, Cheryl herself says about how changing the language, this whole thing with solutions. Mm. I, I don't really think I'd completely thought about how problematic solutions come out how problematic <laughs> solutions can be oh my word but yeah but no the whole thing we use we, you know traditionally we've used the word solution an awful lot mm. in design and it um and it's it's very def you know, definitive it's very this is the end um you know we've all me and you have worked on many projects just saying project as well is almost as problematic as saying solution yeah because it implies that there's an end and you're finished yep there is and and you know you, some work has to finish you can't you can't continue everything forever mm. you need to be finished with that design <laughs> or but it's 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 not finished finished you've got to yeah, be ready with that exactly. iteration you also have to be aware that it's going to have to change again yeah yeah <laughs> and it might not be right it's not nothing we do is mm. the ultimate solution <laughs> and it also may then have created problems more problems than it solved and it might not be your problem that it creates problems. Which Ooh, we get back yeah, into the exactly, bounded, yeah. we get back yeah. to the hard system mm. and where you mm. are in the component. So, mm. you know, oh, yeah, are you a designer that's that's a, a component in a system, or are you someone observing the system and understanding the system and calculating the causal loops and what happens elsewhere? Yeah. But if you are interested in taking responsibility, this is a good book to start with. Definitely. So recommended listening, you have found some... And we talked about causal loop diagrams, apparently. Yeah, we did. This is a link show. And um, if you remember... Oh, yeah, you got really excited about blog posts. I remember this. <laughs> yeah, it was a blog post about <clears throat> design <throat> systems and systems thinking. And what we did, we ended up just you know, going off on one about um, causal loop diagrams. Yeah. Um, quite tenuously linking ourselves to the article that we mentioned. But it's, it's, it's really good to listen to, um, you know, after this chat with um, Cheryl about systems thinking and oh, causal loop diagrams. Making it more tangible. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Out of watches. You've made a belt out of watches. Yeah. Now I'm stuck in a time loop. <laughs>